You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, can you lift up your hands and we will get a Bible to you? I want everyone to have the, the word before them this morning. And we'll have someone hand those out to you. Romans chapter 3. And as you flip there, why don't we go and stand up and we'll read chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 25 of chapter 2. Every other week we've started back at verse 16 of chapter 1. So I'm being merciful on you guys today. It says this, For circumcision, already you guys are attentive, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, Judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Lord, as we come to this chapter, Lord, a chapter that I just really feel unworthy to teach. I really feel inadequate to teach it, Lord. It's just so powerful. And so, Lord, I just beg that the the Holy Spirit would speak through me today. Lord, that you would just keep me from any error in, in the teaching, Lord, and that it would be your very presence that preaches to us. And Lord, we pray that in this place, every single man, that his mouth would stop, that he would just recognize his guilt before you. But not only that, that Lord, through faith, he'd receive that awesome gift of freedom, that awesome gift of forgiveness, and that awesome gift of more and more and more righteousness in Christ. Do a work in this service, Lord, that might be different than the last service. Do a work that needs to be done for these people that sovereignly you've drawn here. And do a work that could only be attributed to the powerful living God. Do your work here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Man, you guys can go ahead and be seated. Hopefully you'll remember that in chapter 1, Paul told us that the Gentile, that the Jew, that we were all created by this creator. And yet, even though we knew in our hearts that there was a creator, we've turned from worshiping him to worshiping the created thing, to worshiping an image made like man, like corruptible man, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. He told us that Gentiles have the inward witness of conscience in chapters 1 and chapter 2, but in chapter 1, God's given men the outward witness of creation. In chapter 1, verse 18, you know, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God's just and right to condemn each one of us and to inflict wrath upon each one of us. We are all sinners. But in chapter 2, Paul stops the mouth of the Hebrew, of the Jew, that in all of his religious observances and moral breeding, he also is guilty of the same things and condemns himself when he judges. Maybe not guilty in the same way, in the same exact sins that others do, but he's still a sinner just the same. Chapter 2 of Romans levels the playing field showing that both Jew and Gentile, non-Jews, are guilty before God. Paul challenges the Jew in their hypocrisy. And here today in chapter 3, we're going to see this absolutely incredible presentation by the Apostle Paul as he plays the prosecuting attorney of heaven. He shows us that we all 
are sinners in desperate need of a savior. Such a tremendous legal document is Romans chapter 1 through 8 that Stanford University and Harvard University all used to require their students to memorize these eight chapters as Paul proves that no man is righteous before the living God. All of sin, the pagan and the Gentile who don't know God, they have a conscience that condemns them and the Jew has the written law of God condemning them in their sin. Chapters 2, verse 23 through 29 show us that uh, it's not the outward act of circumcision or the, act, uh, the outward ritual that makes a man right with God, but it's an inward circumcision of the heart. As Deuteronomy tells us, chapter 10, verse 16, that we're to circumcise the foreskins of our heart, that we might not have a hard and stiff neck any longer. That the Lord, by the power of his spirit, would do this inward work in our heart, causing us to be born again, that we might be sensitive to the Lord, hearing from him. And after hearing that, a Jew might ask the question, well, you know, if, if circumcision doesn't matter, if the law doesn't matter, but circumcision of the heart and um, of the spirit is what matters, then verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? If God doesn't look at circumcision, but looks at the inner heart of the person, then why did he give circumcision in the first place? Is it profitable at all? Is being a Jew profitable? Well, in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14, God gives circumcision to Abraham as a sign of the covenant that he made with Abraham. And he says this in Genesis 17, just starting in verse 4. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give you and your descendants the land which, in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And in that chapter, circumcision was the sign of all of those promises from God. And so now you're telling me, Paul, that circumcision doesn't matter at all? It's just all about the heart? You know, Jesus didn't come, Matthew chapter 5 tells us, to obliterate the law, but rather to fulfill the law. To really be, the, you know, he's better than the law. But Paul tells us in verse 2 of Romans chapter 3 that there are advantages, there are profits, much in every way, exclamation point. He uses those a lot in this chapter. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. There is still much profit to being a Jew. First of all, they've been given this oracle, the oracles of God, his law, his revelation of himself, the creator of the universe. To man, what is God that he's mindful of me? Man, that's incredible. Or what is man that he's mindful of me? Of this incredible God, mindful of his little piddly creation. Man, he's loving. 
Romans chapter 9, you can flip over there. It's just a couple chapters away. Romans 9 verse 3. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. What profit is it of being the Jew? Well, Paul, Paul says, I'll tell you what, I love the Jew. There's something so special about my countrymen. I would go to hell and be accursed from Christ that the Israelites, my brethren, my countrymen might be saved. And then he goes on to say, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall eternally blessed God. Amen. What Paul says there, you know, six chapters later, is that, man, look at the benefit of being a Jew. These are the people that the adoption comes through, the glory, covenants, serving, the law, the promises. And not only that, not only the forefathers, but Jesus Christ, who came through the line of Judah, who came through from the throne of David. This is huge, Paul says. This is an advantage. And, and first of all, the best blessing of it all, it's by the Jew that we've been given the written word of God. Is that not an advantage? Thank you, Lord, for the Jew who you've brought the word through. Man, I love lately just this incredible time with my son Russell as we go through the life of David right now. Not even kids' Bibles with my four-year-old son. We're going through the New King James and just reading about David and, and learning from David and pointing towards Jesus, how things are fulfilled in Christ, how Jesus is going to be that seed of David that sits on the throne of the whole world. It's an exciting thing, that having the word given to us. Incredible advantage. But the Jews had misused the law and they misused the word. And they became hypocrites. They took this sign of circumcision that they had and they squandered it, living no different than the common Gentile, the common heathen. Then in verse 3 of Romans chapter 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? You know, what if there are those who never believe in God, in the Messiah, Think of the unbelief of the majority of the Jews, even to this day. Think of the unbelief of the men who cried out on that day, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon our heads and on the heads of our descendants. Does that cry from the Jew nullify God's promises? Does that cry negate and short circuit the promises and the faithfulness of God? The New Living Translation says, true, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean that God is unfaithful? Does the unfaithfulness of man make God unfaithful? The first part of verse 4 is the answer to that. But, you know, whether or not man believes, God is faithful. Even if every man from Adam until me denied God, cursed him to his face, never responded to his loving grace, God would still be absolute truth. Certainly not, Paul says, verse 4. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. No matter how hard man tries to suppress God, 
and suppress the truth and unrighteousness, God's plans will come about. If we were to protest the truth of two plus two equaling four, and we started a big rally, you know, or if you're a fan of the American tale, we started a big wowie, you know, and, and we just all shouted out against the schools, two plus two does not equal four. And we went around and we burned down every school in America and we had this great revolution against math, which sounds kind of nice, actually. <laughs> Micah's all about that, you know. Would that negate the truth that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Truth is not relative. You know, truth is not dependent upon the heart of man and what they're feeling on that day. 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says, Timothy, this is a faithful saying. You know, before we had the written New Testament, there were faithful sayings. And Paul tells Timothy, this is a faithful saying, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Revelation 19.11, when all of the armies of the earth are gathered together for that great battle in Armageddon, and they're fighting each other, and then Jesus comes back in his second coming in power and authority, and every man on earth, even when they're fighting each other, they all turn towards Jesus and try to destroy Jesus. And even when every man on earth has turned against God, his name is still, in Revelation 19.11, faithful and true. And he's going to smite those armies of the earth with the sword of his mouth. He will be victorious, and every man will be found a liar. On that great day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and people cast palm leaves before him, And they shouted out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the Pharisees were like, hey, shut them up. What is this outrage? It's a public debacle. You know, Jesus says, hey, if I shut them up, then even the rocks will cry out. It doesn't matter. God, you know, God is not like the the Greek mythological gods that, you know, get power source from the praise of men. Oh, nobody's worshipped me lately. I'm just going to have to kill over and die. You know, like that, that's Greek. That's man-made God. The more I worship him, the greater he becomes. So he better be good to me. You know, God's like, no, you worship me because I'm worthy of it. And I'm still omniscient and I'm still omnipotent to the T, whether you agree or not, whether you worship me or not. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man be found a liar. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says that the promises of God in him are yes and amen. That's our God's promises. It doesn't matter what man does. He is faithful and true. That you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. This is a quote from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6, that great psalm of repentance from David after he had an adulterous, murderous affair with Bathsheba, killing her husband Uriah. And he cries out in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Listen to this. 
against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just, is this sounding familiar? That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David, who'd done all of this filth, recognizes, Lord, as much as I sinned against Uriah, as much as I even sinned against Bathsheba, as much as I lied to the nation, my sin was against you, you only. And you are the righteous judge. It's before you, it's before me, my mouth is stopped, I can't defend myself. You are just when you speak, and you are blameless when you judge. God is going to be true and blameless in the end, 100%. And it's here that we see just the fallen condition of man, this mistake that man makes in judging God. Can't remember what actor it was. I think it was Mel Gibson back before he did the Passion of the Christ movie, but I should remember, I think it was him. Could be wrong. You know, just him being asked, you know, what are you going to do when you get to heaven someday? And he said, I'm just, I've got a lot of questions for God. You know, God's got to give me some answers. You know, it might not have been Mel Gibson. I don't want to slander him at all. You know, it's just the idea that man has that, boy, howdy, when I get to heaven, God's going to answer this homeboy. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're going to shut your little mouth. You're going to stand before him. You're going to take it, okay? You're either going to get judgment and be cast to hell, or he's, you're going to be covered in the blood of the lamb, and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy that I prepared for you. What a mistake, though, for man to judge God and to make an insufficient judgment of God based upon the limited data that he has. According to all of my research and my big computer machine that I have, God doesn't exist. And God isn't good. And God isn't fair. And God isn't just. With all the data I've collected and using the pens that are in my pocket protector, I've figured out all of these things. And now I'm going to curse this God that you've made up. He never was. And he never is. And he never will be. Man. Man is going to be found a liar. And God is going to be found true. Verses 5 through 8, Paul defends God's judgment. But it's here that we have this preposterous, cockamimi question from a hard-hearted man. And yes, those are two words that I learned this week. Preposterous and cockamimi. These are questions from a hard-hearted man that they come up with to try to just shove contempt in the face of God. And so when you read it, you almost have to just add a little bit of emphasis to say, this is from a hard-hearted man in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And Paul says, I'm speaking as a man. I'm speaking from this viewpoint. If a man would say, hey, my wickedness makes God appear greater and better and more innocent, then why should I be judged? God should thank me for my immorality because it makes him look better. In fact, God is actually unjust for judging me. Paul's rebuttal in verse 6 is certainly not 
Banish the thought. Perish the thought. For how then will God judge the world? This is a bogus thought. It is absurd. And it's ridiculous. It's manly wisdom. That's why Paul says, I speak as a man. Even in their own argument, they know that there will be a judgment one day. There will be a judgment. And if that were the case, there would not be a just judgment. In Romans chapter 6, Paul asks a similar question. What then? Shall we continue to sin blatantly so that grace may abound? You know, as Paul says, where their sin abounds, grace abounds much more or super abounds. So heck, let's all just sin like crazy so that God's grace can be poured out like crazy. And Paul says, certainly not again. Perish the thought. For how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? It's ridiculous logic. Again, a pathetic question, verse 7. Well, if the truth of God has increased through my lie for his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? If my lie just shows the truth of God and just pushes up the truth of God so that God is more glorified because he is faithful and true in his judgments, then why am I being judged as a sinner? I should just be lying more to make God more glorious. It's pathetic. Verse 8, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come? And then Paul just, it's personal to Paul. He says, man, we are slanderously reported. And some affirm that we are saying this. What is the, res the result of all of this preposterous cockamamie? Laughable questions? The end of verse 8. Their condemnation is just. People always want to justify their sin. And make excuses and occasion so that they can sin. But those who fear the Lord and love the Lord cease to sin and desire to flee from sin because they realize it's against the Lord and the Lord alone that we sin. It is an offense to the God who created us in goodness and in love. You know, in our fallen condition, we want to see how close to the cliff we can get with sin. We want to have rights to sin. But man, the heart of a believer recognized that it was those sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. That sin is costly and that God hates it. And the thought should be banished that I get to continue to sin. That God's grace may abound. We've died to sin, those who are in Christ. How shall we live any longer in it? Those with that thought are condemned and their condemnation is just. It's similar to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. When a mute and deaf, uh, demon-possessed man, blind, mute, and deaf were brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed the man so that he both spoke and saw. And all the multitude were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees saw it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So here's Jesus, and he's fulfilling the messianic prophecies of bringing hope and light and healing into the world, setting free those who are oppressed. 
And the Pharisees, instead of humbling themselves before the Messiah who's fulfilling these prophecies, they harden their heart against God and they actually attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil. And they say he only does it because he's the prince of demons. You know, up until that point, Jesus had been having dialogue and, you know, healthy debate with the Pharisees. But at this point, they had so hardened their heart that Jesus then goes into the, the discussion about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Every blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. When you begin to take the awesome, righteous acts of God and declare them to be, very self-righteously, you declare them to be acts of Satan and darkness, you're condemned. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so when a man tries to justify his sin to such a point that he will call God the just judge, unjust, they're condemning themselves. Their condemnation is just. In verses 9 through 20, we have this black cloth revealed. That Then verses 21 through 29, Paul is going to lay this beautiful gem, this diamond of the gospel, and it is going to sparkle. And today we're going to lay out this black cloth, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna kind of tease you a little bit. We're going to give a little bit of that gem of the gospel, but we don't have time today to go through the whole chapter, but we will get to it. So right now, let's get into this, you know, like a jeweler, when he brings out the engagement ring you're picking out for your wife, he sets that velvet black cloth down, and then it just causes the diamond to sparkle all the more, doesn't it? Okay, so this is going to be tough, the next 10 verses or so, it's going to be tough, okay? It's going to be accusatory towards you. It's going to be rough, and it's intended to be, so that that gem of the the diamond of the gospel looks all the more beautiful verse 9 what then are we better than they not at all for we all have previously charged both jews and greeks that they are all under sin notice just that humility in paul you know after teaching the last two chapters he knows that he's not even any better than the people that make up those ridiculous excuses for their sin am i better than them i'm not are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Are the Gentiles better? No. I've been preaching it that the Jews and the Greeks are all under sin. As the New Living Translation says, well then, should we conclude that the Jews are better than others? Not at all. We've already shown that people, whether Jew or Gentile, are all under the power of sin. Jews aren't better than the Greeks. Greeks aren't better than the Jews. They're all under sin, which speaks of being a slave to sin. There may be historical advantages to being a Jew, but the Jew is in the same place as every other human, and that is under sin, being a slave to sin. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, whoever sins has made himself a slave to that sin. You know, we all like freedom, you know. We all shout with brave heart, you know, when he says, you may take my life, but you'll never take my freedom. And everybody, yeah, freedom. What is Freedom. You guys notice it's kind of this idea now in the postmodern world that freedom is just that ability to express myself. And that's just, that's freedom. Well, how do we even know what we're supposed to express? Because Jeremiah would tell us if you were going to express yourself, you would be expressing a wicked, deceitful, and corrupt heart. 
I don't think people would really be that excited to express themselves if that's what they knew was coming out. The Bible says we're slaves to sin, and yet we don't express that. Sin is a slave master. No slave earns wages, right? They just work or they get the whip to their back. But Romans chapter 6 says that the wages of sin is death. If you work for this slave master, you will die. You will be condemned. You'll have a physical death and an eternal spiritual death. And here in verses 10 through 19... We have this string of pearls laid out for us. These quotes from Psalms and Isaiah, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs. These string of pearls, or as one pastor says, it's a catalog of sin from head to toe. As verse 10 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Remember, I said it was going to be hard to hear. There is none righteous, no one is righteous. You know, there's two categories that are laid out here. First of all, that sin is, a, is theological before it is sociological. We have a the, theology problem when we sin. We've been de-godding God, like we've studied in Romans chapter 1, and all sin stems from that idolatry, stems from that false theological perspective in your mind. Romans 1 tells us that we owe our lives to God, to our creator, and yet nobody gives their lives to God. Job chapter 15, verses 14 and 16, it says, What is man that he could be pure? Or who is he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? How much less a man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water? If you've been born of a woman today, you are filthy apart from Christ. And that goes for me as well. We drink in sin like it's a tall glass of sarsaparilla. Drink it in, enjoying it. We're not righteous. Jeremiah says that that heart that you have is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked. You can't even understand that. Who can know it? Mark 10, Jesus talking to the rich young ruler. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except one, and that is God. He's the only one who is good. Ephesians 2 tells us that by nature, we are children of wrath. Colossians tells us that the members that we have, they are on this earth, they are fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. You're not a good man. And you're not a good woman. No one is innocent. No, not one. Revelations chapter 21 and 22 tell us that the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerer, and idolaters, and remember, idolatry is the, the stem of the whole list of sins, they will all have their part in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. That's hell. You are a sinner, not right, not good, not innocent. Verse 11 says, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. These are big statements, very offensive to people when they first hear them. 
hearing that no one seeks after God. And this shows us the second category, that sin is relational before it is behavioral. No one seeks after God to have this relationship with him, to love him with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their strength. No man does that. Martin Luther said nobody breaks any of the Ten Commandments without first breaking, without first breaking the first commandment. No one's loving the Lord with all that they've got. It might not seem as bad as being a murderer, an adulterer, or a child molester, but every single one of us are idolaters. And that makes us all guilty and just as bad as the other. This sin makes us self-absorbed, worshiping ourself and our pleasures, self-seeking, Romans chapter 2 verse 7 tells us. Rather than God-seeking and God-centered, you know, I love Facebook as much as the next guy. It can be an awesome tool for the gospel. It can be an awesome tool with connecting with family and friends. But I'll tell you what, I think we just get to see how self-absorbed man is nowadays because of Facebook. Might not have totally understood it until now. And now we just got people that, you know, they carry something around in their pocket where they can just log on and they can just tell everybody about themselves all day long. Me, 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 You know, Brian Regan, my favorite comedian, calls it the me monster. You know, just all about him. You're trying to tell me a good story of something you've done? Well, here's you. Me, you, me, you, me, you know? The me monster. Just all about me. I just picked up a coffee at Starbucks. So delicious. Thought I'd go home and share it with my wife. It's pretty awesome, you know? Oh, just wash my hands after going to the bathroom. Just thought everybody should know that. I do wash my hands. I don't know about you guys, but I keep hand sanitizer all around the house. You know, blah, 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 blah. Like, it's all about you, isn't it? And yes, it's all about Rory. Ask Lindsay, okay? <laughs> Man, you get on Facebook and there's that red number above the notifications, you know. Someone mentioned you. Someone put a picture of you on. Oh, this is incredible. This is... And then you see that you're, you look ugly and horrible in the picture. And then you curse everybody and untag yourself. You know. We are so self-centered, even in helping others, we are self-centered. We want to be needed. We get power in this, you know, validation and meaning. And we get this meaning in life and sense of being wanted and being, you know, gosh, it's just all about us, even in our helping others. You know, we puff ourselves up, you know, in self-righteousness. That we serve at the mission base, you know, or we care about the orphans, or we serve at the oasis. You know, we just, we can default to that so quickly. You know, Paul doesn't deny that people do good things. But if you look at the whole of scripture, we know that all of these good things are inevitably tainted before God because they're not built on the foundation of that these good things are supposed to worship God and glorify God. And that's why when the Christians are judged one day according to the deeds done in their body, whether good or bad, their judge is not going to, judgment is not going to be impunitive where they're punished for things, but we will have a judgment where all the things that we did for our own glory and to puff ourselves up and to get the picture put on Facebook so everyone will know I like to help everybody, you know, or whatever. Um, yes, I do have a couple pictures of myself on the Helping Hands website. I'm going to have to delete that. But, you know, it's like, you know... All right, well, I hope you got your reward, and I hope you got your notification, and I hope you got the pat on the back and the clap, you know. Um, but that was your reward. 
And it's going to burn away like chaff. And you're going to get to heaven, but you're going to be smelling like fire. Paul's words, not mine. Because, gosh, in our unregenerate state, even when we do something good, it's for ourself. It's not for the glory of God. Isaiah 64 says, our best work on our best day is like a putrid, smelly, filthy rag. You don't even want to know what kind. That is our best work on our best day in comparison to God in all of his glory. And so what we have in these verses, verses 9 through 19, 9 through 18, is this universality of sin or just this universal sin in every man. And when, you know, we get some good lessons out of this when we know everybody's a sinner. First of all, nobody is superior to another. Boy, that's humbling, isn't it? Not one of us is superior. And within the church, there's no room for superiority whatsoever. This also means, knowing that there's universal sin over every man, that the religious, morally bred person is just as wicked as the thief, as the murderer, and as the rapist, and whatever else sin you want to add there. If you're raised in a Christian home, you're just as filthy and guilty. Doesn't mean there's not different effects because of sin, but we all have the same seed of sin within us. And that's why Jesus says, if you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. If you've been angry at your brother without a cause, and you've hated him, then you've murdered him in your heart. That kernel of sin is within you, and it's just as deadly and just as filthy. Some people say that this universality of sin makes you look down on everyone else when really it just levels the playing field out. We are all equal as wretched sinners. I'm the same as you. We're equal opportunity around here. Everyone gets the wrath of God the same as the other. Okay? It's the great equalizer knowing that sin is all across the board. You know, when... Religious people who see themselves as superior to anyone else, then they've failed to really understand the gospel. Because the gospel says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one can get to heaven in and of their own righteousness or good works or deeds. But by the shed blood of Jesus, the wrath of God is taken away. And if anyone believes in that, his goodness is on you, and you'll be saved. It's nothing what you've done. It's just a response to what he has done. The gospel just humbles us like nothing else does. You know, before we stand in judgment, we realize that by the grace of God, there go I. I don't know if you've ever watched the show To Catch a Predator on NBC. I don't think it's really on anymore. You know, Chris Hansen used to be the, the host. And they would set up these sting houses and they would get, you know, uh, men with, you know, tendencies after uh, young children to come into a, a house and they would kind of lure them in. And right before anything happened in the house, Dateline NBC would come out with all of their cameras and the man would get caught in red-handed, you know, about to uh, elicit sex with a teenager. And, you know, many times it would be physicians and just prominent men within society and, you know, camera would get right up in the guy's face and he'd start sobbing. And you know what? I never laughed once. 
Because that could be Rory Rogers. I have the same seed in me as that man. It might manifest itself a little bit different in different things. But every one of us is a sinner. Not one is righteous. And for that reason, every single conversion is radical. Whether you're a heroin addict or a crystal meth addict or, you know, Hitler or, you know, the religious homeschooled kid that was raised in a Christian home that memorized the whole Bible and has every Bible question answered, you know, if he think that, thinks that that is what is getting him right with God and getting him into heaven, he too is a sinner. Talk to John Dick this week, who's down in uh, uh, Albuquerque. He went to Skip Isaac's church and a young guy, Levi Lusco, taught there. And he taught pretty much the same message I did. And at the end of the service, John says that he had all of the servants in the church and children's ministry workers and ushers and deacons and elders who had never been saved come forward to receive Christ. And you know what? The aisles were full. The aisles were full. And I wonder, would our aisles be full? We rest in our heritage. Gosh, we rest in our outward appearance. When we're depraved, we're not righteous. And we see the symptoms of our sickness, this disease of sin. Different symptoms in, di in each person, but it's the same disease. And it begins in verse 12. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. And you'll notice that's a bookend. Verse 11 starts with it. Verse 12 ends with it. There is none, not good, not one. Do you understand? I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, churchgoer. Since age 11, I am talking to you, greeter, usher, or whatever it might be. I'm talking to you, guy that served me the communion today. I am talking to you, worship leader, that apart from Christ, you are not good. Ecclesiastes pretty much says the same thing. There's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. To the unregenerate man, you are described here. You want to note in these verses how much is said about the mouth. I mean, the mouth is just what really, it's a telltale sign of a sinful man who needs regeneration. You have the organs of speech given here in verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. I just picture really bad breath coming out of this guy's throat, you know, but it just stems from what's inside. And you look inside this man's mouth and there's just the bones of the ones that he's devoured, the lies that he's spoken, this inward corruption leading towards an outward manifestation. Jesus said it to the Pharisees. He says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you open that mouth and I see the bones inside. I see the rottenness and the putrid smell is upon my nose. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It comes out of the source. The source is the heart. Jesus says, it's not what goes into the, man's, into the man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of the man that defiles uh, uh, the man. It's the heart that is corrupt. And that mouth can just show us what's in the heart. Jesus said it himself. Verse uh, 13, it goes on to say, With their tongues they practice deceit. With the poison of asps is under their lips. 
Psalm 5, 9, it says there's no faithfulness in their mouth. With the tongues, there's just deceit practice. Deceit, it's lying. But you might not be saying the lie, you're living the lie, and you're, you're tricking people by what you say. Deceptive flattery is saying something that, that might be positive to get something from somebody. And it's wickedness. And it's a sign that you have not been born again. You know, when you lie, why do you lie? You lie for the sake of your own reputation. You might think you're lying for your friends, but you're really just lying for your own, you know, social standing, and you do anything to protect it. Out of the lips of this man are poison, you know, it's the poison of asps. Asp is a, I always thought it was the tree with the white bark, but no, it's a poisonous snake, aspen, I think. It's a poisonous snake like a cobra, having venom, and it causes a very quick death. Our words can be harsh and can be deadly and can be detrimental and tremendously harmful. I don't know much about snakes either, snakes or trees or anything. Um, But I think on the Discovery Channel, you know, when they do the slow-mo of the snake biting something, that it's actually these little fleshly fangs that kind of hide up in there. And then when they go to bite, they pop out. And they strike and they kill. Jesus, or, you know, Paul says here, man, the lips hide the poison of asps. You got the lip gloss on and you're looking good, but then you open your mouth. <laughs> just going for the kill with deceit. The trash talking that goes on. You know, Ecclesiastes says, when people speak evil of you, don't be too bitter towards them because you're doing the same thing. The poison of asps is in their lips. Verse 14, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Man, the mouth has such destructive power, just so negative that you destroy the person you're talking to, even though you're not even talking about them. You're poisoning their well. Their feet, and you just see this whole catalog of sin from head to toe. The, the feet are swift to shed blood, swift to take people out. No care of human life. You slightly provoke someone, they're ready to kill you. I don't know if you guys have ever been in little fender benders or whatever, and you're like, oh, oops, sorry, they'll probably take it well. And you get out, and they just, <laughs> baseball bats already out. You know, they're going for you. Holy moly, I'm insured. Slight offense, and you want to kill somebody. Your feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery, it's in your way. It's who you are. Head to toe, mouth, lip, throat, feet. You are destructive. You bring misery. Verse 17, in the way of peace, you've never known it. You know, most of these are taken from the Psalms. And you've read the Psalms. You know, usually David, he's complaining about somebody else. He's chasing me in the desert, Lord. Have vengeance on me. Kill my enemies. Stand up for me. But you know that David was just foreshadowing Jesus' cries? And that David and his nation of Israel were actually the ones that were attacking and killing? And Jesus is the one that says, they're killing me without a cause. Take vengeance. God is the psalmist, really. And Israel's in the category with the enemy a big deal if you're familiar with the Old Testament. It's a big deal for the Jews to read Romans chapter 3 and to realize, yeah, get them. Yeah, the them is you. You've offended God. 
There's no fear of God before their eyes, verse 18. No fear. That's the root of sin. Not worshiping God. Not giving reverence to God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You know, this goes against every other religion. Every other religion kind of divides the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, kind of in there. But the Bible and Christianity and Jesus, it just says everyone's ugly and everyone's bad. There are no good. No one fears God. No one reveres God, has, has a reverence for him. What produces reverence? The psalmist will tell you, I come into your house in the multitude of your mercy and in fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. It's the fear of, um, it's the mercy of God. It's the goodness of God. It's the forbearance of God that brings repentance that causes us to fear him. It's his love that causes that reverence. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. We don't have to shake and tremble like he's going to squash us. He will squash the unrighteous one day. But that reverence, it's a love reverence. It's loving him back. Man, we can't argue at the spot-on assessment of God to mankind. But one thing I want to note in these verses is not only are we not good in our unregenerate state, we actually seek unrighteousness and seek wickedness. Well, I might not be good, but I'm not bad. No, you're bad. You're wicked. You've got the fangs. You've got the poison lipstick on. You're bad. Not only are you not good, you're bad. You're wicked. Beautiful thing, spoiler alert, for a little more into next week. Not only does God make us innocent, he makes us the righteousness of God. When we're sinners, we're not just bad. We're horrible and wicked. But in Christ, we're not just innocent. We are righteous because of what Christ has done. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law, the Ten Commandments, just really being that foundation of the law, shows that both the Jews and the Gentiles that they're guilty before God. As you stand before the law, your mouth of defense is stopped. Douglas Moo said the knowledge of sin does not simply mean that the law defines sin. Rather, what is meant is that the law gives people the understanding of sin as a power that holds everything in bondage and brings guilt and condemnation. The law gives people the demand of God in our constant failure to attain the goal of that demand. We recognize ourselves to be sinners and justly condemned. And so not only do we need to repent of our sins, but we need to repent of the reasons that we've sinned. We need to repent of everything. Our very motive is at stake here. Man, when we preach this, we preach it the same way Paul does. That every mouth may be stopped. We bring the law out when we share with people and we say, hey, you're not worshiping God. You're an idolater. Hey, you've been lusting after your the girl in class or your neighbor's wife, you're an adulterer, Jesus says. You've stolen, you know, you've stolen from your taxes. You've stolen answers on tests. You've stolen, you know, uh, penny candy from the candy store. You're a thief. And this and that, we can use the law as a tutor to show us that we're sinners. Down to our very motives. And we accuse people and we call them sinners. 
so that we can show them how beautiful forgiveness is. In order to be forgiven, you've got to be accused of something. The gospel shuts our mouths. The law shuts our mouths. We can't defend ourselves. You know, Paul says Shut, that every mouth may be stopped. And not only do we not defend ourselves anymore, but we don't beat ourselves up anymore in Christ. We just shut our mouths. We just let him do it. He's done it. We don't beat ourselves up. Oh, I did this. No, Jesus says, you've been forgiven. Stop. Just enjoy what I've provided for you. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Till We Have Faces. And back in the early 50s, he's telling of the Greek mythological uh, characters Cupid and Psyche. Okay? Uh, there was a woman in this story named Oruol who had this whole lifetime of bitterness. And she kept kind of this, uh, you know, mythal, or not mythical, old school journal. It was a scroll. And in her scroll, she just wrote of all the ways that the gods had offended her and done her injustice and how many times she was good and she was right, but the gods have offended her. Mythology, okay, so gods, forgive the multiple gods thing, right? Just, oh, the gods, horrible and done this and so unjust, blah, blah, blah. But me, I'm good and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. Her, her book was basically a book of poison against the gods. But one day, it came to where she could stand before the gods. And so Oral stood before them, and she read her complaints. And as she stood in their presence, she could barely read it. It says her book was so dark. Her life's work appeared to her eyes strangely small and dirty and dog-eared and scribbled in a dark, angry hand. Not only this, but the same words were repeated over and over in the book. Vile charges against the gods and declarations of her innocence. And she realized that this book was a book of poison. So she said, I know now why you utter no answer, for you are the answer." Before your presence, questions die away. To hear myself making the complaint is the answer. To see you was to have the answer. When man stands before God in judgment and they see how pure and holy and perfect God is, their mouth will shut. They won't complain. They won't argue. To see him will be the answer. God presents or Paul presents this courtroom drama for us in these three chapters of Romans. God is the offended party, but he's also the judge. We are over being prosecuted. But when we receive Jesus, the offended judge actually steps down from his, uh, whatchamacallit, and comes over into the, the bench of the guilty or the bench of the condemned, and he takes their place. He takes the place as now he's judge, jury, and executed. He laid his life down and became the sinner for us that we might become the righteousness in him. And so what can we say and what can we do in this courtroom drama? We just shut our mouth and we receive that sacrifice. We receive that substitute of the righteous judge in our stead. We're going to have the worship team come on up. And as they come, I just want to read this hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. 
Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I fly to the, mount, uh, to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeing breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, See thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. The good news is, is we didn't seek after God and we don't seek after God, but God sought after us. And he provided, as verse 24 shows us, justification that's free by his grace, redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and verse 25 a propitiation by his blood. The wrath of God is appeased. The right judgment of the judge is appeased by the blood of Jesus. And so as we come to the communion table today and as we close in worship, three songs of worship, a little you know, extended, man, let's lay down all of our self-righteousness. It's a big thing for you if you're in ministry or if you're raised in the church to humble yourself. It might, it might be just as big of a thing as confessing an affair or crystal meth or something for you to humble yourself and say, I've been finding my righteousness in works and in heritage rather than in Jesus sound people and pastors. Man, it's a beautiful thing to Jesus, though. It's a beautiful thing. And so as we, the ushers are going to pass out communion, as we take the cup and the bread, we remember and we proclaim the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, that the bread symbolizing his body that was torn apart and whipped and broken and beaten, and it should have been you, and you can take that bread and you can just thank the Lord and remember and say, Lord, you did this because of me. Did this because of my sin. And when you drink the cup, you can remember his blood that was spilled by the Roman phlegorum as it crossed across his back. By the Roman patibulum, the crossbeam of the cross as he packed it to Calvary. Calvary. By the blood that was spilled in those nail-scarred hands and feet. As the crown was pressed into his forehead. You can remember what Jesus did for you. And you can receive, like a little child would receive a gift. You can receive God's gift of his innocence. And you can be clothed in that today. At the same time, he will take upon himself 
has taken upon himself. Your sin, your wickedness, and your shame. That those sins would never be remembered again. Through faith today. respond to him in communion today and, and in worship and if you want man you this the floor is available up here for just kneeling and just brokenness you can grab your friend or come grab me we'll pray for you let's confess and acknowledge our iniquity that it was against you and you alone God that we've sinned thank you for your sacrifice Ushers, you can go ahead and come forward. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.